If you join me at Bible study today, we are at the eighth day of the seven-day festival of Sukkot, which makes even me kind of cock my head and go, how do we have an eighth day of a seven-day festival? But we do, because God ordained it. Today is the day called Shemini Atzeret, which means it's the concluding assembly. When Shemini Atzeret is ultimately fulfilled, all of the biblical prophecy about Messiah's first and second coming will have been fulfilled. Which tells you we're not there yet. Because Messiah has not returned. He's not set up the kingdom. But one of these days, he will. So last week, on the first day of Sukkot, we went through about half of my notes on Sukkot. Today we're going to pick up there. And we're going to look back historically at how the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles points to and teaches about Messiah's second coming to return and establish the kingdom. So let's begin first in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Even I'm curious about why, so let's go look and see what it says. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon, so it's going to come shortly after Proverbs, isn't it? Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 1. At the festival of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, is the time when our Messiah Yeshua was born. And yet there is nothing in the Bible about celebrating Messiah's birth. And people go, I wonder why. The children of God, they didn't celebrate birthdays. The only birthdays you find in the Bible are pagans, Herod and Pharaoh. And the reason is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death better than the day of one's birth. Because when you're born... Everybody think back to the day you were born. Remember it well? Of course not. What have you done by that point in life? Nothing. You've accomplished nothing. But on the day of your death, you have accomplished everything you're going to accomplish in this world. You have either lived for God or you have not. And you will soon face judgment day. And you'll either be rewarded for your obedience or you'll be in the smoking section going, gee, I wish I had done better. So this is why birthdays are not celebrated in the Bible. Because at the time of your birth, you haven't accomplished anything yet. But let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7, which foretells and prophesies the birth of our Messiah Yeshua. He was born, the Bible told us he would be, and he was And he's called several things. Once you go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Are you recording already? Yes, we're recording already. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's a sign? What is a sign? The rainbow is the sign of the covenant that God made with all the earth. The Shabbat is the sign that we worship the true and living God. It is what? It's an indicator, right? Something that will draw our attention to a significant event. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
What's behold mean? Is something important to follow? Yes. The virgin shall conceive. It's not actually virgin. The Hebrew word is Alma, which means a virtuous young woman. But if she's unmarried, then she's a virgin. And God uses this word to apply to two different women. One is the wife of, of Ahaz the king, and the other is the virgin Mary. Mary was a virgin. Ahaz's wife was not. So God chose a word that would apply equally in both cases. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, Im, means with. Imanu, with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. What does the Feast of Tabernacles celebrate? God dwelling amongst us, dwelling amongst people. It remembers God dwelling in the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness, and it looks forward and prophesies that a Messiah will return and rule and reign in our midst. So when God referred in the Old Testament there in the first instance to the wife of Ahaz, she bore a son whose name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah tore out all the pagan idols, tore down all the high places and restored the worship of God so that God would once more in the eyes of the people be amongst us. In the future when Messiah returns, he will be God who is in the midst of us. So the two fulfillments historically. Let's go to the book of Luke. People ask me, how can we know that Messiah was born at the Feast of Tabernacles? We have to read the book of Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 5. You guys are smart enough to know that Luke chapter 1 has nothing to do with the birth of Messiah in these early verses. But yes, it does. Who is exactly six months older than Yeshua? John the Baptist. That's why we have to start there. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Was Herod an Israelite? No, he was an Idumean, which means a descendant of Esau. That's why Rome put him as king of Israel to insult the Jewish people. A certain priest, priest meaning he's a descendant of whom? Of Aaron. Hmm. Named Zacharias. That's from the Greek. His name is Zachariah or in Hebrew Zachariah. Zachariah means the Lord remembers. All the names in the Bible have great significance. Zechariah, the Lord remembers, of the division of Abijah. Did God have a mean old English teacher that gave him a thousand page book to write? No. So all the details are important. What's the significance about the fact that he's of the division of Abijah? The answer is that tells us when he's serving at the temple. Go back to the book of 1 Chronicles, keeping a finger here in Luke. 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Did all the priests serve in the temple every day of every year? The answer is no. All the priests served at the three pilgrim festivals. So the week of Passover, the week of Shavuot or Pentecost, and the week of Tabernacles. 
So you have to keep that in mind. When you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David is going to divide the priests into courses. He's going to do it by lot. When he does it by lot, who determines which tribe serves when? God does. So let's start in verse 30, verse 5. Verse 5. Thus they were divided by lot. One group is another. Now the first lot, verse 7. Let's go down to verse 7. The first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Malchiah, the sixth to Mishamin, the seventh to Hakok, the eighth to Abijah. So they start the first course of the priest. That's the first lot fell to Jehoiarib. He serves in the first week of the biblical year. So the first week of the month of Aviv. And then Jediah serves the second week, etc., etc. So if there were no pilgrim festivals, then Abijah would serve in the eighth week of the year. But there are two pilgrim festivals between the first week and the eighth. So Abijah's course, his descendants, are serving in the tenth week of the year, which puts us in early June, just after the Feast of Shavuot. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 1. So the events are going to happen in early June. Verse 5 continues, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, so she's of the priestly line as well. And her name was Elizabeth, or in Hebrew, Elisheva, which means the oath of God. Put their names together, the Lord remembers the oath of God. What oath is that? Turn back to Malachi. Turn back to Malachi. When Zechariah prays in the temple, his prayer is going to include a part of Malachi chapter 4. Remember the prayers were scripted. We know exactly what he was praying when he was in there. The prayer he was praying included I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4 starting in verse 4. Zechariah is going to pray this. Rem- You're not there yet. Okay. Oh, I have three questions out there and go to meeting land. Let me see. Oh, they already answered it. Thank you, Rachel. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb. What's Horeb? That's Mount Sinai. For all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So God made an oath, a solemn promise to send Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. With that in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Is that really important? Yeah, it really is. Verse 6. And they are both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Why is that important? Because they have no children. People considered a couple that were childless to be sinners in rebellion against God. But this tells us that's not the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So why did they have no children? So God could do a miraculous wonder. You bet. 
Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. What's that mean? They're really old. They're really old. No, they're older than that. And that's really significant to the story. John was raised by the Essenes. Why wasn't John raised to adulthood by his parents? Because when he was born, they were really old. They didn't survive. Okay. Verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division. So the 10th week of the year, early June. That's why they had to tell us what division he's in. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Let me explain this. You probably already know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. A priest could burn incense in the temple the, at most once in his entire lifetime. No more than once. And many never got to it all. The way it was done is all the priests who were on duty when it was time to burn the incense would draw lots. And God would determine which priest got to go in and burn incense that day. And he could never do it again. He'd never be part of the lottery. So God chose Zechariah this day to go into the holy place and burn incense. How many do you think he went into the Holy of Holies? He did not. He'd have been a crispy critter. Just into the holy place. That's where the altar of incense is. So the lot fell on him to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. That is, God chose him for this day. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. What are they praying? They're praying the Amidah, the very same prayer that he's praying in the temple. This is important. How long did it take them to pray the Amidah? About the same time it should have taken him to pray the Amidah. Okay. So verse 10, the whole multitude of the people is praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Why do we care what side he's standing on? Ah, if Zachariah is facing the altar of incense, he's facing west. If the angel is to the right, that means he's to the north of the altar. Where was the sin offering sacrificed? To the north of the altar. Where was Messiah crucified? To the north of the altar. All these things have a key. It says in verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, which means what? He was terrified. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. Everybody assumes, well, he was praying for a child. No, he's praying the Amidah. He's praying for Malachi 4.4, for Elijah, the forerunner of Messiah, to come. Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. What is John in Hebrew? Yochanan, which comes from the word for comfort. Comfort. Remember, Zachariah is sitting there going, he doesn't know how old my wife is. <laughs> yes, the angel does. But your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For, because he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. 
which means he will be a Nazarite from birth. A Nazarite vow is normally a vow that's taken voluntarily. I make a Nazarite vow that I'm going to be a Nazarite for three months. I shave my hair, burn it on the altar, and during the three months of my vow, I can't drink wine, I can't eat grapes, I can't eat the, the peel of grapes, I can't eat raisins, I can't touch dead bodies. I'm consecrated unto the Lord until the end of the Nazarite vow when I go to Jerusalem and I cut off my hair and burn it on the altar with an animal sacrifice, etc. John doesn't get a choice. He's a Nazarite from birth. He will never, ever cut his hair. He will never, ever drink wine. He will never, ever touch a dead body. Since he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, that is, before he's even born. What does this say about abortion? <coughs> he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was ever born. Hmm. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's the fulfillment of Malachi 4 about turning the hearts of the children to the father, the father to the children. He is not Elijah. God doesn't do reincarnation, but he's in the spirit and the role of Elijah. How do we know that? Verse 17, he will also go before him, that is before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Just think of Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. What did John preach as he baptized out at the Jordan River? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you turn the hearts of the children to God the Father? Preach repentance. Hmm. This isn't talking about earthly fathers. No, this is talking about turning us back to God. Yeah, but uh, I, would, I would recommend that the person who preaches repentance ought not be saying, do as I say, not as I do. Oh, I absolutely agree Don't with you. do it in hypocrisy. That's so Romans that chapter work. 1 and 2. Yeah. It won't work at all. I can, right. I can, you can look at me and tell. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so back to Luke. Verse 18, if you were Zechariah, you're an old man, one foot standing over the grave, and your wife is just as old. How would you react to this? Would you have a little skepticism? Well, so does Zechariah. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Meaning, how can I possibly believe this is true? He's talking to an angel who wants to know, how can I possibly believe you? For I am an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Gabriel means the mighty one of God. He's one of the few angels in the Bible that we know their names. He's the mighty one of God. Not only the mighty one of God, but a mighty warrior. A Gavir is a mighty warrior. Who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Who sent him? God sent him. But behold, in other words, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. What's that mean in their own time? 
Is the baby going to be miraculously born in three days? No. She's going to carry the baby the normal nine months. Hmm. So he's not going to be able to speak for nine months plus two weeks. Verse 20, and the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. They finished their prayer, and he's hanging in there. He's still in there, and they're going, what's going on? Verse 20, when he came out, he could not speak to them. Why? He's mute. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Why didn't he use the American Sign Language? <laughs> Hadn't been invented yet. Verse 23, so was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, they served a complete week, that he departed to his own house. He goes back to where he lives with his wife, Elizabeth. Now, after those days, because there's a period of separation he must have from his wife before they can resume marital relations, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And she hid herself five months. Keep note of that. That's important. Five months. Why isn't she parading around town saying, hey, everybody, I'm pregnant? She's, She's an old woman. They wouldn't believe her. But after five months, they're going to be able to tell, right? Saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. What reproach? Because everybody was looking at her like, you're barren because you're a sinner. You're rebellious against God and he's punishing you. Was that the case? No, it wasn't. But now how are they going to look upon her? So verse 26, now in the sixth month, it's not the sixth month of the year, it's the sixth month of her pregnancy. She hid herself five months, so it's now the sixth month. So what time of year does that make it? Go forward six months from mid-June? Mid-December. It's Hanukkah time. Messiah gets conceived at Hanukkah, but I'm getting ahead of the story. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, that very same angel that spoke to Elizabeth, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us that Messiah would be born in Nazareth. The word used there for branch is Netzer, which is where you get the word Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Betrothed, what does that mean? It's the first stage of marriage. It's more powerful than a betrothal. The way it works is this. A man sees a virgin that he wants to marry. And he draws up a marriage contract called a ketubah. He takes it to her father's house and they make sure the terms are acceptable to the father. Then she's got to marry him, right? No, no. Then they call the young woman and they say, this man has made this proposal he won't beat you too often. He only get drunk on Sundays, whatever it happens to be. And they set a glass of wine in front of her. If she accepts the marriage proposal, she will drink from the cup. Remember how Messiah said, if you won't drink from the cup, you'll have no part of me? Yeah. So when she drinks from the cup, they are betrothed. The only way to break a betrothal after that is through a divorce. And yet they can't cohabit. 
So it's more than a betrothal, but less than a marriage. The bridegroom then goes back to his father's house where he builds the bridal chamber. Remember John 14, in my father's house are many mansions, the bridal chambers. He had to take at least a year to do it, but not more than two. Which pictures Messiah will be gone from us for about 2,000 years, no more. And then he will come back to get his bride. If you ask the bridegroom, when is the wedding? The bridegroom's answer was always, no man knows but my father. Because the bridegroom didn't get to decide when the marriage chamber was done. Otherwise, he'd throw up a lean-to and go get the bride, right? <laughs> so you, his father got to decide when it's time would say, now go get your bride. He couldn't go alone. That would be improper. You can't be alone with the bride before the wedding. So he had to take a witness with him. They would go to the bride's house, but not all the way. They had to stop a ways from it, blow a trumpet, and shout. And the bride, who's been making herself ready, would come out to them, meet them, and they would go together to the father's house for the wedding ceremony. That's the way it worked. If you've seen a movie, Before the Wrath, that's what that new movie called Before the Wrath is all about. The theologians have said, guess what? We've just seen there's all kinds of prophecy in that ancient Jewish wedding ceremony. To which we all go, well, uh, we told you. Yes, sir, Edmund. Um, I've a couple of times at least read that the to break betrothal was more serious than the, a marriage. Why is that? Why is that more serious? Um, I guess because you could only divorce your wife on the grounds of sexual immorality. And normally, if you're breaking a betrothal, it's for other reasons less honorable. That's the only reason I could come up with. Yeah, I was puzzled, and I came across it more than once. Yeah, I don't doubt Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. And it made the bride a, a matter of public ridicule, and that's never a good thing. Okay, back to Luke chapter 1. Um, verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph... Joseph is a direct descendant of King David. But he's also a direct descendant of King Jeconiah, also called Keniah. Let's go back to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. If there had been a king in Israel in those days, it would have been Joseph. Jeremiah chapter 24 Jeremiah chapter 22, I'm sorry, not 24, 22, starting in verse 24. There's where the 24 comes in. Yeah, there it is. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, says the Lord. How long does the Lord live? Forever. This is a vow on the name of the Lord. Though Keniah, he's the king of Judah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck it off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. That means Babylonians. So I will cast you out, you and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. 
But to the land to which they desire to return, there you shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So no physical descendant of Jeconiah can ever be king in Israel. Ever. Why does it say earth, earth, earth? Because remember, in, back in Deuteronomy, it kept saying, I call heaven and earth as witness against you. Yeah. So the earth is still here. The earth remembers God's curse, his vow. Forever. Yeah. So if Messiah had been born the physical son of Joseph, he could not have been the Messiah, he could not be king of Israel. But being a virgin birth and adopted by Joseph, the adopted child gets the legal rights of the father without the curse of Jeconiah, because that was against his physical descendants. So that's how Messiah can be king of Israel, because he does not trace his lineage through Joseph but through Mary. Okay. It says the virgin's name was Mary. What's significant about that? What does Miriam mean? Rebel. rebel. Yeah, the name means rebel. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. Consider what manner of greeting this was. Does she realize this, Gabriel? Not yet. She's just thinking, man, this guy's kind of strange. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. The name means salvation. Yeshua was born to be the salvation of mankind. And he will be called great. He will be great. And will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. If he was just a flesh and blood human being. And not God from all eternity. This is impossible. Because what happens to people? They die. But Isaiah chapter 9, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9, had prophesied something about this child. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. That word child is yelled. Y-E-L-E-D. It means a baby. One born of a mother. That's talking about Messiah's first coming. Unto us a son is given. That word son does not mean baby. Unto us a son is given. That's the second coming. There's 2,000 years between the two clauses of that one sentence. And the government will be upon his shoulder. That is the kingship. The descendant of David to rule again on the throne of Israel. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. If you have a comma between Wonderful and Counselor, take it out. 
wonderful counselor. Then the next clause is El Gibor, mighty God. A name for this child is mighty God. Is this the only place that Messiah is referred to as God? No, we'll see another in a minute. It goes on to say, everlasting father, which is not right, is father of eternity. That is, he's the one who created everything. He is the origin of everything. And Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. For how long? Forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But see that word increase in verse 7? That's a most unusual word. The Hebrew is lamarbe. Lamarbe. And you hear the M sound in lamarbe? It doesn't look right. The sound that sounds like an M is made from the Hebrew letter maim. And maim has a different look when it's in the middle of a word than when it's at the end. When it's the last letter of a word, it's a sofit form, S-O-F-I-T, sofit. It looks like a closed box. And before the birth of Messiah, the Jewish scholar said that closed maim in the middle of the word means Messiah will be the subject of a virgin birth. After Messiah's day, they changed their mind and said, well, we got that one wrong. But... This is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Messiah and that his throne would never end. So let us go back to Luke. Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But in order to rule over Israel forever, he must first be born of the woman. He must be the yelled before he's the king. Verse 34, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? She hadn't been to science class, but she knew this much. I haven't had sex with a man. How is this going to happen? Verse 35, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One, that Holy One. That's a term used to refer to the believers who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Yeshua. Did he keep the commandments of God according to John 15? He did. Who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. So as Mary's thinking, this is not possible, the angel said, neither was it possible for your cousin Elizabeth to get married, and yet, and have a baby, and yet, she's having a baby. Yeah, you're right. She was married a long time. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in verse 35, the, shall be called the Son of God. You shall be called the Son of God. Ben Elohim. Ben Elohim. Mm -hmm. ben Elohim. Thank you. Yep. So your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. That was miraculous. So Mary can understand that if she can get pregnant, then Mary can get pregnant by a miraculous event. 
And this is now the sixth month for who who was called barren. That's how we know that in verse 26, the sixth month was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, not the sixth month of the calendar. Verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So it's Hanukkah time when Mary conceives our Messiah Yeshua. And it's the sixth month for Elizabeth. Add three months to Hanukkah time, it comes out to Passover. How many of you have been to a Passover Seder? And at the Seder, you set a plate for Elijah. John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah was born at Passover. What comes exactly six months after Passover? The Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 37. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, which means I'll do whatever God wants me to do. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary lived in Nazareth. That's up north near the Sea of Galilee. Zachariah and Elizabeth lived down in Judah. Why? Because he's a priest. And he's part of those that are settling in the Essene community, which were priests that were upset with the way the temple was being run because the high priesthood was being bought from Rome. And the high priests were not following God's law. So priests that were loyal to God started the Essene community, which we know today is Qumran, which is why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. And that's why John was raised down there. Let's see, verse 41. I want everybody who's wondering whether abortion is okay or not to read this verse. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. How pregnant is Elizabeth? Six months. That the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary has just gotten pregnant. And yet... Our Messiah Yeshua has this effect on John, who's just six months in the womb of Elizabeth, that he leaps with joy, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Did they have to wait for either baby to be born to react? No. Verse 42, Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why would Elizabeth call Mary the mother of my Lord? She was filled with the Holy Spirit. She is prophesying. She has, given, has been given the knowledge from the Lord. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded to my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Let's see, verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So Mary stays down in Judah for three months. At that point, she's beginning to show, right? 
she goes back to Nazareth. She also wanted to be gone when Elizabeth gave birth because she didn't want to see that. Okay? Verse 57. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. He's born at Passover. There are eight days between Passover and the seven days of unleavened bread. When do you circumcise the child? On the eighth day. Messiah is born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. When do you circumcise the child? On the eighth day. Why does the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles have eight days? Okay. Verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zechariah. Is that what Gabriel told them? No, but they don't know it. Why? Why didn't Zechariah tell them? He hasn't spoken for nine months now. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he, sh what he would have him called. So he asked for a writing tablet, wrote saying his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, praising God. Verse 65. Then fear came on all who dwelled around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, which means what? He's going to prophesy. And prophesied, saying, Listen to these words. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Messiah is not going to be born for three more months yet. Right? Somebody go, no, it's six more months. Mary's only three months pregnant when Elizabeth gives birth. So it's yet a long time till Messiah is born. And yet he says, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for his visit and redeemed his people. He's talking about Messiah being in the womb of Mary. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn refers to the might as in a king. And salvation is the word Yeshua. In the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Talking about prophets like Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 7, Zechariah chapter 23 and 33, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Micah 5, all kinds of prophecies. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What were the names of Zechariah and Elizabeth? The Lord remembers his oath. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Through Messiah Yeshua, we have eternal salvation. Do we then walk in sin? says we might serve without fear. How? In holiness and righteousness. Does it say in the book of Hebrews that without holiness no one will see God? It does. And righteousness is the opposite of 
lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Messiah will say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. We're told right here that God expects us who come to faith in him by Messiah to serve him in holiness and righteousness. How long? Just all the days of our life, which means in this life and in the world to come. And you, child, now he's talking to John that was just born. You, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before his face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Isn't that what Malachi 4.4 was about? Yeah. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Who was it that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? That was John. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew chapter 3 says. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's Isaiah 9 too, isn't it? To guide our feet into the way of peace. The way, John 14, 6, Messiah said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now chapter 2, we're going to pass on to the birth of Messiah. Yes, Melanie? Uh, um, back on 78. Back on 78. Which, the day spring. What's that? Yeah, referring to God in heaven. Let's see, I got two questions down here in chat. The answer to Warren is yes. Talking about breaking the betrothal, um, being a picture of Israel being betrothed to God at Mount Sinai, and then breaking the covenant with God. So yeah, it's a good simile, as he calls it. Okay. So chapter... Yes, Sam? Um, down to 74. Down to 74? Yeah, um went over that several times and it kind of leaped out at me that the uh, I don't know what to call it to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear in holiness yep. and righteousness if we allow that to become a sticking point in our faith and we have whatever amount of fear we have about whatever situation that stops us from having the opportunity that the Lord has for us to be that servant for him. Yeah. So, so we, we cannot live in fear. None. It says fear not over and over. Yeah, fear not over and over. Yeah. And then it lists all the blessings of what we can do in his service the next several verses. Right. <laughs> and also, I think that is supported by when Yeshua said on more than one occasion, go and sin no more. Yep, go and sin no more. You know, I've had people recently say, but, but it's not possible not to sin. Well, the Lord more than once said, go and sin no more. So obviously it is possible. And in Luke chapter 1, it said what? They were blameless before the Lord. And I, I think that that's why it says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Yep, what's that word end? 
That's when, that's, that's the end of the end. <laughs> that word end is telos. It means till the Lord comes in the kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and when the Lord sees, oh, well, how do I word this? He's already paid the price for our sin. And if we accept that and walk in it, even though in our earthly realm here, yeah, we, we recognize that we've still messed up, but 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 Yeshua stands as our advocate to the Father for us, saying, no, it's done. When we repent. You know, and we, we're being human, we still remember, oh, well, I did this and that. And, so and then we going, repent. No, it's done. Yep. Okay, chapter two. Wayne. Or not. Yes, Edmund. You just mentioned the word, the verse which said they were blameless, right? right? So that was their condition, and yet Zachariah, obviously by his response to Gabriel, you could cut that wasn't perfection. I mean that was uh, a sin at a certain level, um, but there's a difference between your your general context. You can be blameless. That doesn't mean you won't misstep here and there. I yep. don't think they contradict one another. I don't either. When we misstep here or there, we repent of it. When we repent of it, God is faithful and just to forgive us, right? Yep. Yep. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's get on to the birth of Messiah. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That took place over an eight- Plus six, 14 year period. It started in 8 BCE and went to 6 AD. You had that entire time period to be registered. Okay? Verse 2 This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. If you don't realize you had 14 years to do it, they think everybody picked up on the same day and went to be registered, but it's not. And where does Joseph, being of the house of David, have to go to be registered? He has to go to Bethlehem. From Nazareth to Bethlehem is a long way. Would he, if he has 14 years to do this, just decide, well, it's August, I may as well go 75 miles down to Bethlehem and be registered and come back? Or would he go when he has to go anyway because of the pilgrim festivals? Yeah, he would go when he's going anyway to be part of the pilgrim festival. Because three times a year they have to go up to Jerusalem, right? And Bethlehem is one of the three bedroom communities to Jerusalem. There was Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem. Jerusalem couldn't hold all the pilgrims when everybody came up to Jerusalem for the festivals. So people had to stay in Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem when there's no room in Jerusalem. So verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, that's in the north, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Even though they're not formally married yet, they're just betrothed, that's married enough that she has to be registered as part of his household. Hello, Sam. Are you trying to get our attention? <laughs> Let me see if I can mute that. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that it's just a computer issue. Okay. Who was with child? What does that mean? She's pregnant. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to, for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's significant. At the Feast of Tabernacles, in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem, they have three great lights that stand up above the temple, give light all over the countryside. And they're olive oil lights, but they use as wicks swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths. Messiah is the light of the world. He's born, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. More to that when we get to John chapter 8. And laid him in a manger. People go, oh, he was born in a barn. No, he wasn't born in a barn. There's no room for them in the inn. Why? Because it's the pilgrim festivals and everybody's in Jerusalem for the festival. So the owner of the inn lets them go out to his sukkah, his tabernacle, and stay there. The food box in the tabernacle is called the manger. It says because there was no room for them in the inn. I've heard many people just immediately react and go, wait a minute, God couldn't make a reservation at the inn? Well, of course he could have. But if you think of the inn in those days, it's not like a hotel today. Everybody's sleeping on the floor in a big common area. How you want to be about a 14-year-old virgin giving birth to a child in the midst of a room full of strangers? No. But outside in the sukkah where it's nice and private? Yes. So he is not being born in a barn full of animals with manure everywhere. That's not the way it was. It's just the way it is in the cartoons on TV. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That is an important thing. In Israel, up in Bethlehem, there's a big shepherd's field between the city of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's called Migdal Eder. And that's where the shepherds keep their flocks in the fields at night, but not in the wintertime because it's too cold. So from sometime in November till early spring, the sheep have to be penned up at night so they can huddle close together and keep warm. They can't be kept in the fields at night. They would die. So this immediately tells you it's not mid-December. It's not late December. It's in the fall. Okay. Verse 9, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy. What's another term for the Feast of Tabernacles? The season of our joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord. He is the Lord, as in the Lord from Genesis to Malachi. The word Lord is the most common term for God in the Bible. This will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And immediately there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. They say that those verses are part of the ancient Sukkot liturgy. 
I wasn't there, but that's what the experts tell me. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the, angel, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made known widely the saying which was told them concerning this child. That's important. Who did they tell? Everybody. Where was Herod's palace? In Bethlehem. It's called Herodian. Herod was a maniac. He killed his own sons because he was afraid one might succeed him one day. His good friend Caesar said, it's better to be a pig in the house of Herod than one of his own sons because at least he won't eat the pig. This is how much he was afraid that someone would take his throne. Verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, and was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. Why is he circumcised on the eighth day? That's what God says, circumcised on the eighth day. That's when you name the child, and that's when you bring gifts to the child. This is when the Magi arrive and bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold represents deity, frankincense, and myrrh are burial spices. But when they came to see Messiah, to be there at his circumcision, who did they talk to first? But to Herod. Remember, Herod said, tell me where he is because I want to worship him too. Yeah. So verse 21. When eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Yeshua, which means salvation. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In the book of Matthew, it says, and she called his name salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. When you put the name Jesus in there, I always wonder, what does it mean? You should call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from the sins. It didn't make any sense. But once I understood the name Yeshua means salvation, then it made sense. So he's circumcised. He's given the name salvation that the angel told her to call him. And the wise men give the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's in Matthew. Luke didn't record this. He said, go read Matthew. <laughs> and then what also you don't find in, John, in Luke, but you find in Matthew is... After the wise men came, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, take the mother and child and go to Egypt, right, until the death of Herod. Herod died in November. They say the year was 4 BC, but the important thing is he died in November. They know that because of an eclipse that happened. And once he was dead, then the angel told him to take the child back to and do the rest that was commanded in the law. And that's verse 22. So between verse 21 and 22 is when they flee to Egypt until the death of Herod. So Herod dies in November and they come back to Israel. Verse 22. Now in the days of her purification according to law Moses were completed. That means Messiah is 40 days old. So when he was 8 days old they were told to go to Egypt. And they're back in Israel by the time he's 40 days old. Yep. How long a trip is it from Jerusalem to Egypt? It's about seven days. So they get there, they stay a week or two, they come back. 
So they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So they did what's called the Pediahabain ceremony, and they present him to the Lord in the temple. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, Shimon, which means hearing. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a term for Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. That is, the Lord brought him into the temple to say, this is the time. When the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, referring to what? The crucifixion that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. But notice it says a sword will pierce through your own soul, also meaning through your very heart. Messiah died by crucifixion, but then what did the Roman soldier do? Pierced through his heart with the spear. So he says your heart's going to be pierced too. Verse 36, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. And had lived with her, had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity. That is, she's married for seven years. This woman was a widow of about 84 years. Well, if she was married for seven, then she's a widow for 84. She's not a young chick anymore, is she? No, she's old. Who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. So how old was Messiah when they returned to Nazareth? Forty days old. How many of you heard that the wise men came when he's two years old and found him in Bethlehem? From the time he's 40 days old, he's back up in Nazareth. So why do we know that there's three kings that came to see him? We, we three kings of Orient. <laughs> it's from a child's song. And you know, there was even a little drummer boy that came and played the drum. None of that was real. It's just stories we learned as children. The wise men came. The wise men, Chachanim in Hebrew, were the students at the yeshivas in Babylon. They were the ones studying the prophecies in the book in Numbers about the coming of Messiah being prophesied by the star who followed the star to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. 
And when they asked them, how long has it been since you saw the star? They said two years. But the star didn't appear when Messiah was born. The star appeared to lead them to. So, okay. There was a great caravan that came, which caused a great stir in the city of Jerusalem. And once they told Herod about the birth of the child, you think Herod would have waited two years to go try and slaughter all the children? Oh, no. So that's the story of Messiah's birth. Let's go to the book of John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist that we were just reading about in Luke chapter 1. This man came for a witness. The witness prophesied in Malachi 4. To bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, that is John wasn't but was sent to bear witness of that light, that light which is our Messiah, Yeshua. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world was made through who? Through our Messiah, Yeshua. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Does that mean he was rejected 100%? No. It says, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe. Is that a once in a lifetime occurrence or is that a present participle? That's a present participle. Who believe and continue to believe in his name. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. And then here's the key verse, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. That's what the word means. He tabernacled amongst us. He was Emmanuel, God who was with us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, that is born later, is preferred before me, that is, he's higher in status. For he was before me. Wait a minute, he was born after me, but he existed before me? That's because he's always been. Emmanuel. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. Oh, how this verse has been misinterpreted and misused. The law was given at Mount Sinai through Moses, but grace and truth came through Messiah Yeshua. How long has he been here? Forever, from the beginning. Grace and truth is from the beginning. Meaning salvation by faith came before the law was given at Mount Sinai. Where does God tell us that Abraham believed God and God account him for righteousness? That's in Genesis 15. 
How long before the law was given at Mount Sinai? 430 years, right? If you go to Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the law was not given as a way of salvation. That it was not possible to do that. I know the scripture says with God all things are possible, but there's an exception. God cannot lie. In Galatians chapter 3, it tells us in verse 6 that Abraham believed God and was accounted for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who have faith are sons of Abraham. And then it says in verse 17 of the same chapter, Galatians 3, 17. And this I say that the law, talking about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and following, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Messiah. That's the covenant of salvation by faith to Abraham, that it should make the promise of no effect. Can God break a covenant? Psalm 8934, God says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So once God makes a covenant with the shed blood of Messiah, that salvation's by faith, can he then later say, Well, I changed my mind? I tell you what, salvation will be through Irish blood. <laughs> Only Irish people can be saved. Some of you got going, that's really good. What if God said, you have to be less than five foot three to be saved? Uh-oh, let's make it a little taller, right? Once God says salvation is by faith, nothing changes it. The law was not given as the way of salvation. It was given as instruction in righteousness for God's children to know how to please God. Do loving children want to please a loving father? Yeah, that's what it was given for. Okay, let's go to John chapter 8. I'm getting too wordy, so go to John chapter 8. Last night, we looked at John chapter 7, verses 37 to 53, which took place yesterday, on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the time of Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation. Chapter 8 takes place the next day, which is today, on Shemini Atzeret. Verse 1 says, But Yeshua went out to the Mount of Olives. So that's the end of the day. Why doesn't he stay in Jerusalem? He doesn't like Jerusalem. And there's no room anyway. So he goes out to the Mount of Olives where we find the Garden of Gethsemane. Now early in the morning... He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When he had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. What does the law say when someone's caught in adultery? Who gets put on trial? The man and the woman. Why is it just a woman? Because they don't care about the law. They don't care about justice. They're trying to trap Messiah. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They figure this is a juridical question. That the answer is going to condemn Messiah. 
If he says stoner, they're going to say you have no compassion, no forgiveness. If he says don't stoner, they're going to say you don't care about the law. So they figure they've got him either way. And that's why in verse 6 it says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Whenever you read that, you know that the person is innocent. They have no accusation. They're trying to create an accusation. But Yeshua stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What did he write on the ground? We looked at it yesterday. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 17. That's some verses that were read yesterday. On the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles at Hoshana Rabbah. At the time that Messiah stood up and said, He who believes in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, referring to the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. He just told him yesterday, he's the fountain of living waters and here they are trying to find something of which to accuse him. So he's writing in the dirt their names. So let's see, verse 7, let's go back to John 8, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, why isn't he answering them? He is, he's writing their names. And is that making them uncomfortable? That's making them uncomfortable. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He doesn't say she hasn't sinned. He says, you who are without sin, as they are forsaking the Lord, throw the first stone. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The names continue. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. But look at the order. Beginning with the oldest, even to the last, meaning the youngest. The oldest, wisest, most experienced is saying, didn't we just hear yesterday about names being written in the earth? And look what's being written. I'm leaving here. I'm leaving here. And Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Yeshua had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? I mean, didn't anybody start throwing stones? She said, no one, Lord. Yeshua said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What is repentance? Wayne. Sinning no more. Yes, Edmund. One, one teacher pointed out to me that um, it says that he was sitting down, which means it was a teaching session. And when you have a rabbi, you, you always leave the room from the oldest to the youngest. So it, they're following it as in a teaching session. And I also have, I just happened to see yesterday, um, this was in a book, uh, the mystery of what Jesus wrote in the dust in John 8, 8 might be solved in Jeremiah 17, where we read the prayer, O Lord, the hope of Israel, 
All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. The significance is not what Jesus wrote in the dust, but that he wrote in the dust. Note that Jesus had just referred to himself as the streams of living water in 7.37-38. Jesus uses Jeremiah 7 to shame the shamers, but also to prophesy the destruction of those who reject him. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So I thought you know, he could have been writing this verse down on the dirt. He could. The verb, he might be, he might be written, writing the verse. Except Jeremiah 17, 13 says, they will be written in the dust. He may have written that verse anyhow. So he may have. They would figure it out. He may have added the verse too. You never know. So let's get back to John 8, because we're still at the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verse 12, where is he? It says he's where? He's in the temple. What's in the temple courtyard? Those huge lights with olive oil burning with the swaddling claws as the wicks. Those lights are called the light of the world. It's standing in front of those where he says in verse 12, And Yeshua spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. So he's saying, those are not the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm the one who was wrapped in swaddling cloths. The olive oil that's burning him is a picture of the Holy Spirit. What's Messiah filled with? The Holy Spirit. He is the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now in the 15 minutes we have left, let's shift gears and look to all the prophecies associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Starting in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew. Yes, ma'am? What's the Hebrew word for what? What's the Hebrew word for? I forget. Somebody, somebody will look it up before I'm done. Rachel's probably on it right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. What word? What word was it that needed to look up? The Hebrew word for the manger, the food box in the sukkah. Matthew Thank chapter you. sixteen, verse twenty-eight. Well, I can tell you because I'm French, and, and and that means manger. Pronounced manger. Manger means eat. Yeah, it means to eat. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, which is a prophecy about the Feast of Tabernacles, the establishment of the kingdom of the Lord. Matthew 16, 28 says, Assuredly, which means it's really true, I say to you, there are some standing here, <coughs> meaning in his physical presence, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Oh, how the non-Messianic rabbis have made fun of us for this one. Saying, which of the apostles are still alive today? But that's not what the Lord said. You must read carefully. Until they what? Till they see the Son of Man. And now we're about to see a vision. Chapter 17, verse 1. No, after six days. 
What's that? The word see indicates a vision. We're now at Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Now after six days, which indicates 6,000 years from creation, brings us to the day of the Lord when Messiah will return and establish his kingdom on earth. Yeshua took Peter, James, and John on the word of two or more, let all things be established. Let them up on a high mountain by themselves. Which mountain? It doesn't tell us. So people argue which mountain is the mountain transfigurate. Who cares? It was a mountain. It was a high mountain. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Just write Ezekiel chapter 43. When Messiah returns and bears the glory of God. And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Who teaches us about Messiah? The law and the prophets. It tells us over and over. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here, what? Three tabernacles. Why would they build tabernacles? You build tabernacles during the feast of tabernacles which teaches about the time Messiah will return and establish his kingdom here on earth. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Is that the first time there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son? No, in Matthew chapter 3. But this one adds, Hear him! Exclamation mark. In Deuteronomy 18, God promised a prophet like Moses and that those who would not listen to him would pay the price for it. So here God's saying, this is the one you're supposed to listen to. Now listen. Verse 6, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. In other words, the vision is over, and they're just on a mountaintop in Israel. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Yeshua commanded them, saying, Tell the what? Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. They saw 2,000 years in the future to Messiah's return to establish the kingdom in a vision. Verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's from Malachi 4. They're saying, Don't they stage that Elijah has to come first? Yeshua answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. That is, he's one of the two witnesses. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him and did to him whatever they wished. That is, they put John the Baptist to death. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John was not Elijah, but he was in that role. If Israel had accepted Yeshua as king and crowned him and put him on the throne, but it wasn't going to happen, was it? Nope, not for 2,000 years. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, Messiah returns to bring in the kingdom to the earth. He returns at Yom Kippur. 
and establishes the kingdom at the Feast of Tabernacles. Given the time, let's shorten the reading. We'll start in verse 19. I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the false messiah, the beast of Revelation 13. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's Messiah, and against his army. For all the armies of the world to gather, it means the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet. He's also in Revelation 13. Who works signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the swords, proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on a horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That ends the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. All those who were not saved are now dead. So what about those who remain alive? They're all believers. They're being brought into the kingdom. So chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice it doesn't say for one thousand years, does it? It says a thousand years. A thousand is a rounded number. Messiah's thousand-year kingdom begins in heaven for seven years. Then he comes to earth in Revelation 19, and the next 993 years are on earth. If that's true, there's got to be a picture in Scripture. Where did David reign for his first seven years? In Hebron, then he brought the kingdom to Jerusalem. Messiah will do the same thing. So it's only 993 years in case you're feeling bad for Satan. Give him a seven-year break. Verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Doesn't say shut the pit up, does it? It says shut him up. And set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That thousand years is while the kingdom is going on. Let's quickly go over to Isaiah chapter 2 to read about the kingdom. What's it going to be like? Don't you want to know? Oh, it's going to be beautiful. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. Isaiah 2. This is about the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth with Messiah on the throne. Verse 2, Isaiah 2.2. 2. Now it shall come to pass in the Acherit Hayamim, the end of days. It's what you and I call the messianic kingdom. They call it the end of days. That the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the messianic kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills. That means it's over every other kingdom of the earth large or small. And all nations shall flow to it. The word nations refer to the Gentile kingdoms that remain. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That house of the God of Jacob is the temple that will sit in Jerusalem with Messiah on the throne. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Did Messiah not realize they've been done away with? And that's because they haven't been done away with. Warlord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. 
He shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Those words are in the United Nations buildings in New York. What they're saying is we don't need God, we can do this ourselves. And how well is that working out? Not so good. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Read almost exactly word for word like Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. So we don't need to read them. But let's go to Zechariah chapter 16. There aren't 16 chapters, but people figure that out when they get there. I thought there'd be a big laugh, ha, 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 but it's Zechariah 14, 16. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 15, is the tribulation period. When verse 15 is over, the tribulation period is over, Messiah has established the kingdom. So Zechariah 14, 16 says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone, see that word, everyone, who is left of all the nations, those are the Gentiles, which came against Jerusalem, that was at the battle of Armageddon, shall go up from year to year, which means every year without fail, to worship the king, that's our Messiah Yeshua, the Lord of hosts, that's him too, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Another term for the Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of All Nations. Verse 17 says, And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If there's no rain, what else is there none of? No food. Which means they're going to come. They're going to come and worship the Lord every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. What's that? And what gets read at the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years? The Torah, the book of Deuteronomy from beginning to end. So that everyone knows the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 tell us that Messiah himself will teach them from Jerusalem. And in the book of Ezekiel, let's go to Ezekiel. Messiah returns in chapter 43. Let's read a few verses from there. Ezekiel 43. Remember I mentioned Ezekiel 43 when we were looking at the transfiguration? Yeah. She says, sure, yeah, uh uh-huh. Whatever gets you to go on and quit looking at me. Verse 1. A little bit older than it was. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. That's the golden gate, or the eastern gate of Jerusalem. It faces the Mount of Olives. In Zechariah 14, Messiah sets his feet where? On the Mount of Olives and comes through the eastern gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. Remember that Shekinah shining glory of God in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration? This is Messiah bearing the glory of God. His voice was like the sound of many waters, which is how Revelation describes the Lord's voice, and the earth shone with his glory. Verse 7, he sits on the throne in the temple. It says, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. That's where the Lord will reign for the thousand years. 
and the place of the soles of my feet, which shows ownership and possession, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And then turn to Ezekiel 44. It tells us what's being taught. Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 said the law will go forth. But people ask, maybe it's a different law. Did the law change? If you look at Ezekiel 44, you find out it did not change. Starting in verse 23, it says, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. There's your assurance that God did not declare all animals clean, as some people like to think. Otherwise, there would be no need to teach the difference between the clean and the unclean. Verse 24, In controversy they shall stand as judges, and judge it according to my judgments, referring to the judgments in the Torah. And they shall keep my laws, that's my Torah, and my statutes, those are the commandments, we don't know why we should do them. In all my appointed meetings, that's the appointments of Leviticus chapter 23. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. There's the weekly Sabbath, like today. There are seven high Sabbaths in Leviticus 23. One of those is also today. So today is not only a Sabbath, it's a high Sabbath. You can just Sabbath the daylights out of it. <laughs> and there's also the Sabbath years. They will keep the Sabbath years. When God says, thou shalt do it forever, what do you think he means? They will do it forever. The Megillah. Yes, sir. Uh, when, when God brought them out of Babylon... Yeah. Would that have been a uh, uh, jubilee year? Hard to know. Israel did not keep track of the jubilees, unfortunately. If they had, I could tell you when Messiah is coming, but they didn't. Okay. Ecclesiastes is the Megillah. So go to Ecclesiastes as we're running out of time. Remember, like you guys said, Solomon wrote it. So, look after Proverbs. The Megillah means read the whole thing from beginning to end, but given the time we have, we're going to skip to the end. I have three notes out here. Let's see. Yeah, she doesn't want to know the Greek word. She wants to know the Hebrew word. Okay. But the Greek word there, if you're curious, is fatsne. Okay. Ecclesiastes 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The word matter there is devar. It means the whole word. Put all of everything together that Solomon learned in his lifetime, and it boils down to this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. There will be a judgment day coming. We will all have to stand before the Lord and be judged. Do we keep his commandments or didn't we? And Solomon says, boy, you're going to enjoy judgment day a whole lot better if you've been faithful to the Lord. And with that, our time's up. We will conclude our Bible study so we can have our ice cream social.